This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Crystal, that was amazing. One of the unpleasant parts of daily Bible reading is coming across a verse or several verses that lists a bunch of sins. Because more than likely, many of us, if if we're honest, as we read through those sins, we have to just kind of raise our hands and say, guilty, guilty, maybe not guilty, but guilty on this one. And there are several different sin lists in the Bible. Of course, the most famous list is the one in the book of Exodus that we know is the Ten Commandments, and it lists sins such as stealing and idolatry, immorality, taking the name of the Lord in vain. And if we were raised in church, we pretty much know that list. We could probably list, just name immediately, five, six, seven, maybe, of the sins on that list, that we may not always follow that list or those commandments, but we know about them. And then in an interesting scripture in in the book of Proverbs chapter 6, Solomon gives us what he initially calls six sins that God hates, and then it's almost like he thinks about it and says, oh, oh, wait a minute, Uh, that's actually seven things or seven sins that the Lord detests. So let me just read that really fast. There are six things the Lord hates. Uh, No, uh, seven things he detests. So what are the sins that God hates or or detests? Haughty eyes, which would be pride. A lying tongue, hands that kill the innocent. And of course, I can't think of anyone more innocent than a child in the womb. A heart that plots evil, feet that race to do wrong. A false witness who pours out lies. And and this last sin mentioned in the list uh, of uh, these sins is this. 
a person, <clears throat> excuse me, who sows discord among brothers. So in the list of sins that, that God hates, uh, he includes the sin of troublemaking in the church. Those who bring division, disunity, in God's eyes, that's a serious sin. Just some food for thought, but that's not my topic. Well, that's the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, we find other sin lists as well. The book of Mark gives a list of 13 different sins in a row, and we won't take time to read that list. And then the Apostle Paul, in the books of 1 Corinthians and and 2 Timothy and Galatians, he gives more sin lists. And then John, the revelator, in the book of Revelation, he gives us kind of, uh, if I'm allowed to say this in church, a gut check when he lists some sins and says, those people, if they do not turn from those sins, they will make their bed in the lake of fire. But if you study history, lists of sins didn't stop with inspired Scripture. Because 500 years or, or, or so after the last book of the Bible was written, a man by the name of Pope Gregory I, or also known as Gregory the Great, who was Bishop of Rome in the late 500s, decided to compile his own list of sins. Now, these weren't new sins. These weren't sins that he had invented or come across. They were just taken from the sin list in the Bible. But he condensed those sins into a list that he considered to be root sins, sins from which all other sins would grow. Now, as I was doing my research this past week, I learned several things that were just fascinating to me. What Pope Gregory did 1,500 years ago almost sounds like today's news. Um, If if you've kept up at all with news over the past several years, you've heard about abuse scandals involving church leaders. One of the churches in the news has been the Catholic Church, and and, and, and some of this abuse went on for years, and, and part of what was known to some of the church leadership at higher levels, they hesitated to deal with it because of the bad PR that it would create. But if you think this is just an attack on the Catholic Church, let me say that this problem is not limited to our Catholic friends, because it's also come to light that even some mainstream Protestant denominations have had leaders involved in scandals and abuse And the leadership failed to address it. In fact, just a few weeks ago, at their annual convention, one of the largest denominations in our country openly dealt with this matter. And and they're in the process of trying to sort through this, trying to figure out how to correct some of the abuse inflicted by pastors and leaders that the church had either covered up or had been very lax in dealing with. But all of that to say that clear back... In the late 500s, about 1,500 years ago, Pope Gregory found himself dealing with the same leadership impropriety crisis that churches and denominations are dealing with today. You know, as the saying is that if we don't deal with things, history repeats itself. And so, as I was reading this and researching, Pope Gregory went on a mission to cleanse and purge the church of priests and bishops that were involved in sin and moral moral and ethical violations. And it said that during his time, he removed many officials. He described them as misdeeds and pride. 
But the misdeeds and pride uh, weren't just limited to leadership. Pope Gregory wanted to see the entire church cleansed of sin. Today, we would probably say he wanted to see revival in the church. And he made a statement that was so, so powerful. In, in writing a book of instruction for his leaders, his bishops, his priests, that again, many of them were acting inappropriately, he said this, Act in such a way that your humility may not be weakness, nor your authority be severity. Justice must be accompanied by humility so that humility may render justice lovable. In other words, he was saying, you need to quit being so arrogant. You need to quit, as leaders, you need to quit being so prideful and quit letting your position of authority cause you to to, to act in ways that are harsh. Be humble so that when you do have to render justice, it will come across in a loving way. Now, the reason I'm I'm giving you this history lesson is that um, during his time as Pope, as as part of his effort to to purge and cleanse the church, he established a list of seven sins that, as I mentioned earlier, uh, he considered to be root sins uh, from which other sins would come. Well, what's interesting, if you keep on studying history, and and I love church history, but uh, 700 or so years later, after Pope Gregory I came up with this list, in the 13th century, one of the great church leaders that is frequently quoted named Thomas Aquinas, who was an Italian philosopher and theologian, but he referred back to this list of root sins defined by Pope Gregory the I, and he brought this list to the forefront again. And this list of sins began to be referred to as the seven capital vices, or, or the seven cardinal sins. But the phrase that, that, that stuck and has most commonly been used to describe these seven sins uh, is the phrase, the seven deadly sins. Again, this was an effort to try to, to cleanse both the church leadership and the membership of abuse and casualness towards sin. So having said that, we want to begin a new sermon series that we are calling The Deadly Seven. And even though I'm not necessarily on a mission to cleanse the church leadership and cleanse the church membership of sin, yet I pray that God will use this series to, to maybe help all of us to do some real evaluation of our lives. And if there is sin in our lives, I pray that we will repent of that sin and be cleansed and see revival. Now, before we get into our lesson, let me give several introductory remarks. First, first of all, as we look at these seven deadly sins, as Pope Gregory called them, you will notice that these sins will not necessarily appear to be deadly. Murder isn't even on the list. Yet when it comes to any sin, especially root sins, sin may not be deadly physically, but it's deadly spiritually. Something else, we will notice that these sins are not necessarily measurable. You know, sins such as lying, stealing, murder, taking the Lord's name in vain, they can be measured. They're action sins. But the sins that we will study over the next few weeks are not necessarily measurable to us because they involve attitudes and and motives. But those sins, even though they may not be as easily identified and and spotted 
and can be covered up and camouflaged, yet in God's eyes, they're just as bad or worse as action sins. Something else. I'm just kind of giving you some introductory stuff. We may not necessarily be in this series seven Sundays in a row. We may actually kind of just sprinkle this series in between other topics over the uh, next few summer months. Still in our introductory remarks, as we go through these seven sins, we don't want to just deal with the symptoms of these sins and merely put a band-aid on them. We want to deal with the root cause, which means that we want to remove these sins from our lives, but then replace them with something else. Scripture calls us to put off some things and to put on other things. In fact, in Colossians 3, 8, it says, but now you yourselves are to put off all of these. What are you to put off? Anger, wrath, which is, an, you know, another, that's anger squared. <laughs> Malice, which is intention to do ill or evil. Blasphemy. Uh, filthy language. Put that out of your mouth. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, here's what we're to put on. So we talked about what we're supposed to put off, but put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another. Yeah, you've got to bear with me. I've got to bear with you. And forgiving one another. So, Put off, put on. And the reason is if you just remove the sin and don't replace it with something, then that sin is going to come back with a vengeance. I mean, Jesus taught that in, in Matthew 12, uh, 43. It says, when an evil spirit leaves a person, it goes into the desert seeking rest but finding none. Then it says, I will return to the person I came from. So he returns, finds his former home empty, swept, and clean. Then the spirit finds seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they all enter the person, live there, and that person is worse off than before. You know, a painful illustration of this would be the many times that We've gone on a diet. Maybe we lost 10 pounds. We got tired of the diet. We went off the diet. Before we knew it, we had not only gained the 10 pounds back, but we had gained an additional 5 pounds. So for a diet to be successful, we have to replace the lifestyle that caused the weight gain with a new healthy lifestyle. So it's not as simple as just killing the sin or removing the sin in our life. We need to replace it with something else. Now, as we launch this series, let me make a statement that I hope you will remember. God wants you to finish your life well. And the concept of finishing well uh, begins today. God wants you to finish this day well. He wants you to finish this week well. He wants you to finish this year well. He wants you to finish your life well. And, and when I say finish well, I mean finish with your character intact. Finish with your integrity intact. And there's really only one thing and one thing only that can keep you from finishing well, and that is sin. Illness can't keep you from finishing well. Poverty can't keep you from finishing well. Sorrow can't keep you from finishing well. The only thing that can keep you and keep me from finishing well is sin. Which leads us, leads me to the painful realization that I am the cause of most of my problems. 
I'm not the cause of all of my problems. Some of you cause me some headaches from time to time. And, and I know you can say the same thing about me. But most of the time when I make a bad decision, I can't blame you. I can't blame anybody else. I can't blame the government, even though I want to. I can't blame the city council. I can't blame the church board. The majority of times I find myself in a pickle, it's because of sin trying to pop up in my life. So during this series, let's have the motto of no excuses. No blaming others. No thinking, well, I hope so-and-so is listening to this. It's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. One last thing before we go to our topic. There's a scripture that will serve as our foundational scripture for this series. And and to help set the tone for today and in the series, I would like for all of us to read this scripture out loud. And there are three phrases I, wanna, I want you to notice as we read. There's the phrase, strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin. Second phrase I want you to notice, run with endurance. Third phrase, keeping our eyes on Jesus. So I want everybody to read. If we could go ahead and get that on the, on the screen if it's there. And I, I want you, everybody, to read out loud. Here we go on the count of three. One, two, three. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily hinders our progress, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us, We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, on whom our faith depends from start to finish. Let's roll. The sin from the deadly seven that we will discuss today is the sin of pride. Now, I realize June is Pride Month, and uh, I, I hesitated to really talk about pride because didn't want it to be misunderstood. Um... This has nothing to do with Gay Pride Month. But the reason I chose this sin as the first sin to discuss is because pride is probably the primary root of all sins. Pride, I think, is the granddaddy of them all. Pride is what caused Lucifer to want to usurp God's throne. He didn't want to bow the knee to God. He didn't want to recognize God as his supreme being, and so he went to war against God. Now, pride can be defined in several different ways, but the bottom line is that pride occurs when I do something or give something or get something or say something so that the attention comes my way. Let me repeat that. Pride occurs when I do something or give something or get something or say something so the attention comes my way. That is pride. Pride is also an excessive belief in one's own abilities. You know, of course, it's good to have a healthy and realistic belief in your abilities. If you're good at something, you don't have to lie and say, well, yeah, I'm just not very good at that. Because many times acting like that is prideful as well. To recognize that God has gifted you in a particular skill is not wrong, but what pride does is it takes that healthy self-esteem and healthy recognition of a gift that God has given us, and it, it exaggerates it. 
In fact, pride does this with all of the seven deadly sins. For example, another one of the sins that we will be discussing is envy. Envy begins innocently, wanting to better yourself, wanting to better your lifestyle. There's nothing wrong with that. You should have that desire to better yourself. But but then perhaps the person at work gets something new and you begin to wish that you had that. Or someone has a character trait that you admire and before you know it, you begin envying that person. Or someone gets a promotion, you envy them because you wish you had that promotion. So again, pride is probably the most deadly sin and the granddaddy of them all. And maybe it would just be healthy for us right now to pause and admit and acknowledge that all of us, did you hear all of us? You know what all means? It means all. We all in some form struggle with pride. This past week I was just praying, oh God, as I'm You know, as I deal with this, would you begin to show me areas of pride in my life thinking, you know what, I'm not going to probably have a problem with this. And it was like just right away, there were several areas that God brought to mind. I don't care how rich you are, I don't care how poor, how good looking, how ugly we are, we all struggle with certain forms of pride. Now, I, again, I, <clears throat> I know some of you don't believe you're prideful. You, you think you're so full of humility, and, and, and you may be, but for some people, their pride comes from the fact that they're not as proud as others. You know, we see someone that's a bit cocky, and we're so thankful we're not arrogant like they are. For other people that think they don't have a problem with pride, their pride comes from consistently, listen, because this hits several of us here today. Their pride comes from consistently trying to steer the conversation back to themselves. Maybe hearing a story about someone's day or a story about their family and then steering the conversation away from them to themselves or to their family and maybe even trying to one-up them. Sometimes there are people that after hearing about someone's bad day or how much they hurt, they find a way to bring the conversation back to them to highlight how hard their life is or how much pain they're in or how bad they have it. Pride is so subtle. We can be prideful that our kids haven't gotten into any major trouble. You know, we look at other families and, and their kids are a mess and into drugs. And it's easy to become a little bit prideful and, and think, well, I, I, we, we've done a better job with our kids than they did. I, I had some parents basically say that to me one time. They, they went on and on about how good of a job they had done with their kids. But what was interesting is they didn't know what, that one of their kids had been involved in some stuff. Everybody knew it except for them. And here they were bragging about how good their kids were they didn't realize that one kid had gone astray, was far from God, involved in some really bad stuff. So we can become prideful over our kids turning out right and thinking that we're the reason that it happened. And let me tell you something that I've learned. I've learned that there are some very dysfunctional homes where parents do everything wrong, but yet they produce some wonderful kids. And then there's some very Good homes that are God-honoring and the parents basically did everything right, but their kids come out of their rebellious and wayward. 
I believe we should do our very best to raise up a child in the way he should go. But ultimately, if our children turn out right, sometimes it's probably in spite of us. It's God's grace and mercy. And, and I've been guilty, and I think some of you probably have as well. When we see kids misbehaving in the store, the doctor's office, what do we say? Well, if I just had a few minutes with that kid, I could straighten them out. Anybody ever say that? Come on. Yeah, you have. You know, they wouldn't do that anymore after I finished with them. Ladies and gentlemen, that is pride. Now, again, Scripture admonishes us to raise our children in the right way, train a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not turn from it. But remember, our children have a free will, and if our children turn out right, it's best to just give God the credit. And then we can become prideful about our finances. We might see people that haven't spent their money well, and and maybe we're good with money, and so we get a little prideful and say, you know, I don't make nearly as much as they do, but we're sure better off financially. We know how to manage our finances We can be prideful about our house, about our car. We can be prideful about our health. We can be, you know, prideful about silly things. I've sent some pride among those that didn't get COVID when everybody else did. Seriously. Well, I didn't get it. Or maybe they got COVID, but it was a light case when others were sick for weeks. And you ready for this? I've detected pride among those who say, well, I didn't get the vaccine. They're not going to tell me what to put in my body. Or, or I did get the vaccine, and those people who won't get the vaccine are the problem with America. So quiet. I, I'm telling you, we have a natural bent towards arrogance, pride, cockiness. And even towards things that we can't take credit for, but we like to try anyway. Now, what are some of the problems that pride will cause? Just really quick, four verses from Proverbs. First thing in Proverbs 11, 2, pride leads to disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. Have you ever seen someone get so full of themselves that they become a disgrace, an embarrassment to their family? Most every family has one of them. Here's something else that pride will do in Proverbs 13.10. Pride leads to arguments. Those who take advice are wise. Think about it. Most of our arguments happen when our pride won't allow us to say, I'm sorry, forgive me. Almost every conflict in marriage has its foundation in pride. Almost every conflict on the court, on the field, that involves an argument has its roots in pride. Here's another scripture, Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before a fall. So you can track it. When, when you see someone that's starting to become a bit cocky, if they don't bring it under control, it's going to lead to some type of downfall. Now, pride generally comes on us gradually. Maybe you begin to have some success in life, and, and that gives you a little bit of self-esteem, and that's not bad. And then you accomplish a few things. Accomplishments are a good thing. And you get a promotion, or you're elected to an office, or, or your business takes off, and again, that's good. 
But if we're not careful, that success can turn into a bit of cockiness, and we will walk around with an air that, you know, we, we know a lot about everything. And, and let me just say, I think there are some that really need to hear this. Most of us can spot cockiness and arrogance and pride a mile away when it's in somebody else. We don't see it in ourselves, but we see it in others. And, and when we begin to have that air that we're pretty good and pretty successful, even though we may not see it, others probably will. And let me warn you, there will be a pushback from people. People don't like cockiness and arrogance in others. I've seen that arrogance in pastors. Some pastors just have that air that they think they're better than others and you know, especially better than pastors that serve in smaller churches. I've seen that air in business owners. You know, if you own your own business um, and have done well, you're going to have to be extra, extra careful to not come across as being a bit uppity. I, I, I've seen business owners that have done well, but they begin to act as if they were hot stuff, and there was a pushback in the community. I've seen cockiness in young people Maybe because they've succeeded in athletics or they've come from a family with some means. Regardless of our age, our success, our abilities, our talents, our personality, you know, all of that many times can lead us to take on a little bit of cockiness. And then pride eventually, in Proverbs 29, 23, pride ends in humiliation. Pride will bring us down. We will eventually be humiliated. Sports stars eventually will have a bad day, and they will fumble the ball. They will throw three interceptions in the game. They will shoot an air ball from the free throw line. They will tear an ACL. They'll have to sit out a year. Pride will eventually bring about humiliation. So pride ends in humiliation. What's the answer? Well, humility brings what? Honor. Humility brings honor. And humility is when you take your pride in yourself and you put it in God and say, God, you're the source of everything. God, God, you're the one that helped me not to get COVID. Thank you, God. God, you're the one that helped my business to take off. God, you're the one that helped my kids to go down the right road and find a good, good husband or wife. God, you're the one that helped me to be able to afford a new car or, or a different house. God, you're the one that has helped me to be able to actually have some talents and gifts to use for you. God, you're the one that has given me good health. Amen. Giving God honor and glory for the things in your life helps break the back of pride Amen. and brings humility. And just so you know, humility is not weakness. Our culture has twisted our view of humility and made it appear as weakness. But, but what happens is this, when, when you humble yourself, you put yourself in a position where God goes to battle for you. Look how James says it in James 4, 6. But he gives us more grace. That's why scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So do you want God opposing you? I don't. I don't want to be on the opposite side of God. God opposes the pride, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, before we wrap up our lesson, I want to talk about some specific ways that we can decrease our pride and replace it with humility. In your notes, you will find a list called uh, 
12 action steps to humility. And, and, and this is from the classic sermon of St. Benedict. And, and I know I'm referring to several Catholic leaders of many years ago, but uh, there were some amazingly godly leaders in the Catholic Church that were closer to God than I'll ever be. But one of them was St. Benedict, and, and he lived in the late 400s into the early 500s. He was the, the founder of the Benedictine Monastery, and, and St. Benedict preached a very famous sermon. It was directed to his monks in a monastery. It was called 12 Steps of Humility, and you can Google this if you want to find it. Now, this, even though the sermon was for his leaders, it was also very applicable to us. And he used old English and, and, and terminology that we don't use today. So I, I've tried to adapt his sermon, make it more readable and understandable. And so let's look at these 12 action steps as we try to wrap up things today. Number one, seek God's will above your own will. This is to break the back of pride. Seek God's will above your own will. And you know, it doesn't take a very strong person to just do whatever they want to do. Eat, drink, sleep, uh, make your own schedule, follow your own schedule, do what you want, when you want. But it takes a very strong person to say, God, not what I want, but what you want. So what if you started every day this coming week with that prayer? God, today, not my will, but your will be done. In my schedule, in my family, in my work, in my play, your will, nothing more nothing less. Number two, confess your sins quickly. Don't let the sun go down on your sins. If you mess up, and you may, probably will, don't say, well, I'll know when the time is right. No, the the right time is always now. If there's sin, if you sin, the right time to confess is now. Confess your sins quickly. Number three, persevere through sickness and affliction quietly. Now, this one's tough. Do you know one of the times in our lives that pride raises its head the most is when we're sick or going through tough times? Because there's the human tendency to want to let people know how miserable we are. And and for some people, if they could find a t-shirt that said, please feel sorry for me today, they would wear it every day. And in fact, there are some people, and it's not that I don't have a concern about their well-being. I do, but, but I've learned to never ask how they are. So if you wonder why I never ask how you are, because I will get a sob story every time, which many times that sob story is pride, trying to get the attention on them. Now, don't misquote me. I believe there's a time and a place for us to speak up about our physical problems, have people pray for us. That's biblical. The book of James says, call the leaders of the church around you, anoint you with oil, pray for them. But what I'm referring to here would be the matter of chronic complaining to get people to notice us and feel sorry for us and be the center of attention. Let's not bring undue attention to our aches and pains and trials. That can be a form of pride. Number four, Study God's Word. There's nothing that will break pride any faster than to go to the Word and let the Word get into us. The Word probes our hearts and helps reveal to us any form of pride. Number five, practice praising others. Instead of bringing attention to ourselves, how about bringing attention to others in a positive way? And as you're in conversation this week, don't talk about yourself. Show interest in them. So what if if you can top the story that they're telling Let them have a moment to feel good about themselves. Praise them. Don't steer it back to you. 
you'll have other opportunities to showcase what you did. But when someone else is telling something about themselves, that's not the time for us to one-up them. Number six, use your gifts to encourage others. God has uniquely gifted you with abilities. Use those abilities to serve God and people. And, and gifts and abilities are, are not designed to hoard for yourself. God gives them to us to benefit others. So if God gives you the gift of music, it's not just so you can enjoy singing in the shower. Now, if you don't have the gift of music, keep it in the shower. <laughs> but if you can sing, it's to bless others. If you have the ability to speak well, it's not just so you can impress yourself in front of the mirror. If you have the ability to make money, it's not just to see how much you can accumulate before you die. Our gifts are used, designed to bless others. Sometimes your family, sometimes the needy, sometimes the church, sometimes the community. Number seven, this is going to be a little bit tough. Plan regular times of fasting. Remember, this is St. Benedict, his, uh, his sermon to his leaders. But throughout the ages, Christians have practiced the spiritual discipline of fasting. Fasting is not always the complete abstinence of food. It can be giving up your daily Diet Coke. And I hesitated there. Um, God would never ask us to give up our coffee, but maybe the Coke or something like that. I would challenge you during this series, l listen, during this series, I challenge you to fast a meal or two every week. You would be surprised what that would do to your spiritual growth. Number eight, be a friend to someone who's going through difficult times. You know, go see someone in the nursing home. Make contact with someone who has lost a loved one. Show interest in some of the needy families we have in this community and in the church. And then here may be the toughest one of all, at least for me, St. Benedict in his sermon encouraged us to restrict sarcasm. RJ, I don't like that one. No. Um, I, I love sarcasm. I love to make sarcastic comments to you, and, and some of you do as well. That, that, that's a gift for some of us. <laughs> and, and there's a place for that. I'm not saying that we've got to always be so uh, sober, but sometimes there's... There's, we need to use some maturity and know when to say, okay, this is not a time for a crazy, sarcastic remark. Number 10, speak gently. When things don't go your way, lose, lose that harshness. Soften your voice. Isn't that what they, they teach in school? Uh, you know, the teachers, instead of yelling at the kids they instruct the teachers to kind of soften their voices because there's something more authoritative about a soft voice, but yet that's firm. So lose that harshness. Speak gently. You'll probably make more of an impact. Number 11, practice silence. This will kill some of you. You don't always have to talk. Sometimes it's nice to let other people talk, even if you think you have something to say. And then have those times where you're in complete silence, where the television is off, surrounding noise is off, because the Bible says, be still 
and know that I'm God. You remember there were times when God spoke the best when there was silence. A still, small voice. And number 12, and I thought this is kind of strange, St. Benedict. (laughs) You know, what does this have to do with anything? But he said, be modest in your appearance and actions. Take a few steps back, evaluate what you wear, how you act. Are you flaunting? Are you trying to draw people's eyes to you? And, you know, today, frankly, there's so much immodesty. And I believe God will judge those who take a second and third look and lust. But I believe that God may judge even more severely those who dress and act in immodest ways. And they cause the lusting. And so through these 12 action steps, the goal is to decrease pride and increase humility. And again, how do we do that? Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, let us strip off every weight that slows us down. Remember we read this, especially the sin that so easily hinders our progress. Let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, on whom our faith depends from start to finish. Now, as we wrap up, and I know, I'm sorry, Sunday school teacher, we've gone a little bit long today, but Um, there are two positions of humility that have been practiced down through the centuries. The first posture of humility is the act of bowing our heads when we pray. Have you ever wondered why we don't look up to God when we pray? And I think that, you know, uh, Christ might have done that if I study his word correctly. It appears that sometimes Christ looked up to the heavens, and I think there is a place for that. But I think other times it's good to just bow our heads because that expresses, expresses humility. Um, But there's another posture, and and that's simply one of getting down on our knees. It's a position where we humble ourselves towards God and say, God, you are God. I am not, and I humble myself before you. So here's what we want to do. To close this service, I want us to show one position of posture, and then this week I want you to show the other. As we pray, I want you to... I want to invite you to bow your heads with me. I'm going to ask you to stand. I want you to bow your heads with me. And then this week, every day, would you find an opportunity to where you get down on your hands and knees before God and say, God, here I am before you. I humble myself before you. God, thank you that uh, your word is concerned about even these root sins, these hidden things that maybe aren't measurable, but they're serious because other sins grow from them. So God, right now, we humble ourselves with a bowed head. Lord, we're sorry for the pride. And God, I pray this week, as we show the other part of humility by kneeling on a daily basis before you. I pray, God, that you would show us our pride. Lord, as you've been showing me the pride that I have in my life, it's ugly. God, forgive me. Lord, I pray that you would be faithful to show us those areas where, God, we um, aren't giving you honor and glory. So, Lord, we humble ourselves. I pray that you would break the back of pride this week, that, Lord, on a daily basis, as we kneel before you, 
Father, I pray that you would begin to show us those areas, maybe just just areas that are starting. But God, that we would we would take steps to deal with this before there's a fall. And so God, we thank you again for your word is powerful and it's relevant. Let us follow your word and Lord, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your goodness and we thank you for allowing us to gather here today. And we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.